One, two. That's better. Micah chapter 6, uh, verses 6 through 8. The mock gate gave most of it to us, but not the best part, I think. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I may have done John a bit of an injustice there because halfway through the week I changed the Bible verse I wanted for the reading. Um, So that's absolutely part of the stuff I wanted to focus on. But fortunately, the more Bible we read in this place, the better we are for it. So I'm going to read an additional reading um, from John chapter 15, uh, verses 9 to 17 on that same theme. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, please frantically turn to that chapter with me. And then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about Anzac Day. John chapter 15 Verses 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. So I'm going to pray and then we are going to explore the theme of the day coming up, Anzac Day. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it inspires us to act with justice and mercy, to love one another, and to value ourselves less than those that we love. We ask, Lord, today that you help us as we um, examine the, the holiday coming up, as we test it with our hearts to decide if it honors you, We ask that you open up your word to us today and open up your word to our hearts. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, I ask this. Amen. How's that for a topic? So when you step back to examine it, Australia is actually kind of a weird country. It's hard to see that when you grow up on the inside, but you sniff around the landscape of history for a while, and you'll find a whole lot to contrast with other countries, but not a whole lot to compare to. 
We're a large country, geographically speaking. We're only a little smaller than the big boys like China and the US. Um, we account for more than 5% of the Earth's land mass. But we only want to live in about 5% of that 5%, specifically the 5% around the edges near all the nice beaches. The rest of the country is, for the most part, of the glorious wilderness that we're not terribly keen to bulldoze, or it's angry desert filled with soccer ball-sized spiders that whistle before they attack, like quirky eight-legged serial killers. We're not large population-wise, not compared to the hundreds of millions in Pakistan or Brazil, or like the billion-plus in China or in India, but we're big enough, with just under 25 million, that in our oceanic area we operate as a kind of a regional policeman. And whenever a conflict breaks out on a conflict, a conflict breaks out on one island or another nearby, and New Zealand pipes up and says, "Australia, I thought I heard something out there." We get to stand up on a little straighter on the international stage and say, "Go back to sleep, New Zealand. I'll handle the peacekeeping on this one, and I'll text you when you can make your token contribution." But we're Anglophones, we're, we're English speakers, and so that means. When the whole world gets together for lunch, we get to sit at the big table with America, who is like our, our taller, richer, outrageously successful big brother. But we have to sit at the far end of that table, because the seats closer to America are taken by Britain and Canada, who I suppose are our retired dad and our middle brother who lives next door to America, so they grew close while we were at boarding school. <laughs> so we feel like a big fish in our home pond, but on the international stage, the players are at least polite to us, even if they periodically forget we exist and can't credibly rely on us for unilateral, world-changing moves. When the nations have a summit on climate change, for example, they'll all nod and murmur, yes, we have to cut global emissions by 20% over the next 50 years to stay on track. And at the far end of the table, Australia leans forward and strains to hear, and then pipes up, well, I'm going to cut my emissions by 1,000% <laughs> by Friday. I'm going to be the world leader on this one, guys. You can trust me. And America and Britain share a knowing look. And then Britain leans over and places a hand on our shoulder and says, that's great, buddy. That's really great. That'll make a big difference. I'm so proud of you. Do you think you could clear the table and then go out the back and play rugby with New Zealand while you and, I, my and your brothers and I have a talk? New Zealand will pop his head up at the window. Is something going on in here, guys, that I should know about? No, New Zealand, go away. This is a discussion for big boys, for English-speaking countries with populations of at least 25 million. New Zealand's thought of that, but you're 24 million. 24.9 million. I'll be 25 million in June, so you round up. Most Australians don't feel like they have a, a history of generational belonging that stretches back terribly far in time. In the grand scheme of time, Australia as we know it, its roots here are shallow. So the oldest public building in Australia is Old Government House in Parramatta, which is about 219 years old. This is it. Um, made of old sandstone blocks like many of our heritage buildings in Brisbane. Um, a beautiful building, in fact, with those old design sensibilities, this sort of out-of-time quality that gives visitors a, a sense of history of 200 years past. This is Warwick Castle. Um, built by William the Conqueror after the conquest of England. It's about a thousand years old. Um, extensively rebuilt merely 800 years ago. This is the Colosseum in Rome. It's, over its history, it's been a public execution 
chamber. It's been a place where Christians were thrown to lions. It's been a blood sport arena for slave gladiators. And also, more often than that, a non-lethal combat stadium, a sort of an Iron Age UFC octagon. It's over 2,000 years old. And these, of course, are the pyramids and the Giza Plateau in Egypt, tombs and reliquaries of the ancient kings of Egypt, starting from about 4,500 years ago. These are all really old. And this is before you get anywhere near things like your henges or your Turkish megaliths. Um, but the point is that poor old government house <laughs> starts to vanish into, into insignificance as the jaws of history yawn wider and wider. And this creates a strange sense of smallness for Australians against the backdrop of the world and of history. Now, there are people in Australia whose history does predate the world's castles and indeed its pyramids. When Pharaoh Khufu was drawing up plans for his pyramid and William the Conqueror was drawing up the plans for his conquest, probably just William at that point, I suppose, the Aborigines were here living as they had for ages prior. But if you go looking around this country for Australian ruins, you won't find them. Ancient Australians were an island people. They weren't connected to the pipeline of worldwide innovation and also conquest that built ancient empires and then crushed them beneath the next ancient empire that was built. No one left Australia to go into the world to bring back the secrets of iron and horses and spaghetti and plumbing. No ancient warlord included the Baganu people in the list of tribes to brutalize and then unite if they were going to be an ancient medieval or even not that long ago Renaissance king. But they didn't build cities or temples in Australia because time for them was kind of a seamless loop. There was no sense that today you needed to build a house so that tomorrow you could build a bigger house and eventually everyone could have really big houses. Tomorrow they would be one with the land as they were yesterday. Summer would come and then winter would come and summer would come again. Life was about cycles in a, a seamless continuum. So when the Age of Empires did finally reach Australian shores, it was more traumatic for those first Australians than we may even first estimate. Something from outside that loop that defined everything they knew came in and changed things in a way that could not be unchanged. To the British, this was an inevitability. If they didn't colonize Australia, then the Spanish would or the Dutch would. Not colonizing was not an option. The world was getting smaller and smaller, and the player with his flag in the most hills was least likely to get blown away by the other players. To the Aboriginal people, in a very real way, the world ended when the first fleet arrived. The idea that yesterday and tomorrow and the dreaming all flowed seamlessly together was suddenly sealed up and locked away in time. And every generation after that would not be defined by how connected they were to the land or how connected they were to their people, but how poorly or how adequately they fared against invaders that they never knew existed, changing their land in ways they didn't think possible with a force they could not hope to oppose. So setting aside the tensions and historical pains between Indigenous Australians and immigrant Australians. Both are confronted by different varieties of the same problem at its heart. A strange sense of somehow being orphaned from history. Indigenous Australians looking back at a heritage they are assured once existed but is so radically different from the world they occupy, they can only in the barest ways ever revisit. And immigrant Australians looking out at a world that probably didn't look a lot different before Australia existed, and if we're honest, probably wouldn't look that different if Australia disappeared. When any of us has to confront a question like, what does it mean to be Australian? 
Once you scratch beneath the surface platitudes like fair go mate and she'll be right, the answer is not immediately clear. Not for the Aboriginal Australians and not for immigrant Australians. And then we have Anzac Day. In an age where generations are increasingly concerned by how little they have in common with each other, how disconnected they are from each other, we have a ritual in which thousands of people, young and old, crawl out of bed on a public holiday before the sun rises. And of their own accord, they take specially chartered buses and trains to Anzac memorial sites across this country. They stand in tightly packed crowds commemorating the sacrifices made by the Anzacs, the last of which died 16 years ago. Some people march in parades wearing the medals of loved ones who have served in foreign wars. Some particularly enterprising people, particularly uh, young ones, like the ones in this picture, they make a pilgrimage to the Anzac Shrine at Gallipoli itself. And they sleep out under the stars there, waiting for the dawn service to come. Australian comedians who will mock anything in the most vulgar tones imaginable steer around Anzac Day as a topic, limiting themselves to tepid jokes about biscuits. We do all of these things because we detect something sacred and profound about commemorating the deaths of those who died united under a common flag. And if our historical roots are only shallow, they are at least that deep. Even our contribution, or even if our contribution to a green energy future turns out to be worth nothing, even if this country as we know it has only existed for the last paragraph on the last page of the big book of history, and if all of those signs suggest a national identity of a questionable worth, there is no question that there is something about the people in this country that is worth dying for because people died for us. Now the gospel is in our nation's veins and it shouldn't surprise us that our centerpiece national ritual revolves around the appreciation of some of those who died so that we may live. And as the passage earlier reminded us, greater love has no man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. The military tradition exemplified by, but not limited to, the Anzac contribution to the First World War is just the most obvious expression of this truth. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we should not rest so easily in this comfort. We are assured that our primary identity is not Australian, but citizens of the kingdom of God. And we are commanded to have no gods before him. But we do build shrines as one might for a god and install eternal flames in them as one might in a temple. And so it's worth our time to ask the question, when we do this, are we honoring God in the way we honor our fallen and our veterans? Or is this merely a kind of a novel, nationally inspired idolatry that's crept in under our radar? It's worth asking that question and getting the answer. Many people of faith have made the argument that Christians should not salute any flag or participate in any war. So for what reason have we assumed that it was a good thing to identify ourselves as Christians by a nation, and our nation by a war? We can't let that go unexamined. So while some might be content to bask in the enigmatic glow of Anzac Day's significance, believers have to uncover that enigma and and decide what exactly they are celebrating and exalting. So in short, when we put a slouch hat and an Australian flag on the cross, are we fairly elevating those things, or are we in some way dragging down the cross? 
I want to suggest that this celebration has something to say about our idea of Australian nationality, about our nation, and something about the way that we think of war and our warriors. So we're going to look at each of those things in turn and see what the Anzac spirit implies about each and decide whether or not we honour God by doing so. So Anzac Day honours the Australian nationality. There is something good or noble about being Australian that someone who is not Australian does not have. That it's uniquely valuable to be Australian in some way. That's the idea. Now, just by contrast, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, who are not quite our brothers and sisters in Christ, but who justify their activities by at least an attempted reading of Scripture, they refuse to vote or engage in patriotic activities like Anzac Day. And they do that because of verses like this one. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to protect my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. They take this very sternly as a call to a single loyalty to the kingdom of God and no other kingdom. And likewise, you'll find a verse like this. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor male nor female, for all you all are one in Christ Jesus. From Galatians 3.28. A verse like that many Christians read and say that Jews, Gentiles, these are categories of people based on people groups, their languages, their customs, which call up divisions. But Christ is all and he is in all. And when you become Christian, that national identity is transcended. And it would be wrong to dismiss that reading out of hand. It is a scriptural truth. The core values of our heart should be the same as the core values in the heart of a Ugandan Christian or a Mongolian Christian. But on the other hand, I don't see Christians lining up around the block to say that male and female are just divisive categories that we have transcended through Jesus. And if we read that part of the verse and instinctively understand that while there's a greater truth that corresponds to the disposition of our soul toward God, and in that men and women have a, a total commonality, we know that nonetheless there is a reality in this world which is still governed by the fact that there are men and women. And likewise, just because Christians have a super identity that is in Christ doesn't mean they can't take any pride in their country and what it stands for and what it stands to achieve. Here's a long verse. Um, when God's people were taken into exile in Babylon, God instructed them in this way. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So God told the Jews, in 70 years I'm going to bring you back to the promised land, but in the meantime... Don't just sit around like a lump. Make yourself productive. Have a family. Make yourself useful. Seek to prosper the society you are in. Pray to God for it. And Christians are citizens of heaven living in exile. We're called not to take part in worldly activity that dishonors God. So the fact that it is a cherished pastime of Australians to periodically get fantastically drunk cannot do that. This is a dishonorable act to God. 
The fact that it's a very Australian thing to have a chip on our shoulder about personal success, sometimes building fantasies constructed entirely of tall poppies and doll bludgers, can't do that. Those are Australian things that we are called to transcend. But at the same time, we're called to seek the success and prosperity of our country. To encourage rites of passage that don't destroy our brains and livers. To encourage more compassion for those whose social station is lagging beneath ours and to be less wickedly envious of our more successful neighbors. And as we do that, there's plenty to love about the nation that God's put us in. Fair treatment and fair play is a national obsession and one that we should sharpen and sophisticate. Our melting pot attitude towards races living together and working together in harmony is an amazing philosophy and triumph in human history. Now, is racism dead? No, obviously not. But 80 years ago, the world was as racist as it had ever been. Universities were shamelessly cranking out papers about eugenics and racial supremacy. Abortion clinics pro proliferated as a means of controlling the growth of non-white demographics. And ultimately, Europe and Asia plunged into great wars of racial hierarchy and extermination. But now, in the country I grew up in, I've had and I have friends and colleagues of every kind of human, and I never once thought that was weird. In fact, it's a preview of what the Bible promises in heaven, not that humanity will be rebuilt into a single, undifferentiated race, but that every tribe and every tongue and every nation will worship at the same throne. One day on resurrection, you will kneel before God, and on your left side might be a fellow who lived in Siberia and never saw dark skin in his life. On your right might be a Congolese woman who never saw light skin in 80 years of her life. To them, they will be surrounded by a fantastic variety of saints like they had never imagined. To you, it's just church. And it honors God to love that about this country. So when Anzac Day celebrates Australia, I think we can breathe easy as long as we note that not everything in the worldly traditions is worth celebrating. And we're careful about the way we approach that. But what about what it has to say about war and about the warriors that we honor, fallen and currently serving? Is it God-honoring to celebrate the warriors and to celebrate, in some at least abstract way, the wars they engage in? Isn't it strange that our most sacred national holiday is a remembrance of a crushing defeat and desperate evacuation? It's one thing to celebrate the country you live in, it's another to be ready to shoot someone for it. After all, Scripture tells us, when Jesus was about to be arrested and taken for trial, Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Many Christians take verses like this as a call to pacifism, to a refusal to violence. The Jews expected the Messiah to come in the form of a conquering hero who crushed the Roman state, but he set an example that was a suffering servant who allowed his enemies to torture and kill him. 
God does not require our strength in arms to accomplish his purposes. And when you are prepared to fight for the armies of kings of this world, you may sometimes end up fighting on the wrong side. So back in World War II, the Nazis confined all their hated social elements into particular camps and gave them specific markings to denote them from one another. Jews in the camps famously were given yellow stars to sew onto their um, clothes or on armbands to mark them as Jews. Gay men were given a pink triangle for the same purpose. There was an additional category for religious dissenters, people of religious conviction who preached against the Nazi government or who refused to aid in their military effort. Those were marked by a purple triangle. One percent of those were Catholic priests and Protestant ministers. Ninety-nine percent of those were Jehovah's Witnesses. They opposed recruitment in the Nazi war machine in such numbers that the Purple Triangle became known as a marking specifically for their group. There was no special incarceration category for Catholics or Protestants or differentiation between their ministers and merely vocal members. German Christians were far more likely to be prison guards in those concentration camps than they were to be prisoners. This is a shameful truth in Christian history, and we have a holy calling not to participate in the kind of reprehensible actions that made the Holocaust possible. And we have to admit that by enforcing the refusal to serve in the military in their churches, the Jehovah's Witnesses avoided participating in a terrible sin that the mainstream church at the time indulged in. But we're not just killing time on this earth. We're not just waiting for the planet to end, and God commands us to live and to live righteously. And the most succinct summation of those commands comes from Micah 6.8, which both Steve and John have read for us. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We create justice in this world when we use strength to restrain human evil. That's something only the strong can do. And when the prisoners of those camps were eventually liberated by those who had survived the horrors of the Nazi incarceration and they began the long road to recovery, they weren't set free by legions of angels. And they weren't set free by armies of Jehovah's Witnesses. They were set free by armies of American and British and Russian men who by and large believed they were doing God's work by fighting for justice on the biggest scale the world had ever known. Those liberated by Americans and British received the best care those armies could muster in their state because justice was, as God had designed, paired with a desire for mercy. Those liberated by Russian soldiers who had had the heart of their orthodox faith scraped out by the godless communist machine were largely set free and left to fend for themselves. A noble military tradition in which a country judiciously chooses the wars it will get involved in, but then acts valiantly on behalf of the weak and vulnerable is something to be proud of and something that honors God. It wasn't God's plan for Jesus to conquer his way into Jerusalem and it's a sick person that uses force to accomplish all their goals. But God is honored when we use the strength that he gives us to seek justice and to love mercy. 
And Christians should have no problem commemorating the lives and the sacrifices of our military men and women past and present. God has not done away with the nations. Nations like individuals have flawed character that is made perfect when the Holy Spirit of God permeates and infuses its members. And God has not in his infinite wisdom even done away with war yet. Preferring at least for now to permit men to resort to it and to have that decision judged later. As with individuals, a nation can do good only by more than accident when its values align with those that God intends for it. And when we remember our soldiers, those who fell, those who made it home complete, those who left a piece of their body or soul behind, and those presently serving, we are honoring an element of our country which is in the world in which it was born precisely as noble and necessary as God desires for it. And I hope one day to see a dawn service at Gallipoli. I think that if all Australians did so, at one point in their life, we would probably all be better for it. Embracing positive traditions is key to squeezing out the negative ones. And a nation that upholds the valor of men and women who lay down their lives for their friends is a nation capable of understanding and receiving a savior who lays down his life for them. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your son and the gospel that tells us how he came to give his life for the salvation of many. We thank you that however traditionally obscured it may seem, the truth of that forms the backbone of our national character. We give you glory for the honorable men and women who have given their lives in service of a nation which historically seeks your will. And we pray for the men and the women serving today and that the character of our nation would remain godly enough to be worthy of their service and sacrifices. Be with our nation in those Anzac services, Lord. Perhaps the only time in a year when many Australians will voluntarily stand and listen to the reading of a psalm. We pray that through these celebrations and the commemorations of those warriors now past, Australians will come to appreciate how everything we honor in our soldiers is a reflection of the character of your son, Jesus. Help all of us to strive and reflect his character as courageously in our own lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.